Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are here with a requested movie today. Some of you might remember that a few weeks, a month ago, we put out a poll on Instagram and asked what you would like to see in episode 73's spot. And this is the movie that won. Barbarian from 2022, which I think this is just proving that 2022 was a fucking year for horror, right? Yeah. How many movies have we covered from 2022 at this point? A lot. (laughs) This has to be at least number five. I think so. (laughs) But here we are with Barbarian, written by Zach Kreger in his solo screenwriting and directorial debut. Yeah, this was an interesting one. I'm still gathering my thoughts on how exactly I feel about this movie. (laughs) There's definitely a lot to talk about. So I think it's perfect for this podcast. Our ladies are very few. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) We have Georgina Campbell as our final girl, Tess. She is known for Murdered by My Boyfriend, Flowers, Broadchurch, and a Black Mirror episode, Hang the DJ. When I saw this on the outline, I was like, I knew I knew this girl from somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, because Hang the DJ, I think, is one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes because it's the dating compatibility one, right? Because I remember her being in almost this like meet cute role, which is very funny because this movie almost seems like it's going to be a rom-com for like maybe half a second. It was giving the same energy for me. Our other lady isn't really a lady, but credited in the role as the mother is Matthew Patrick Davis. So this guy is kind of interesting for a couple reasons. A, this is what, the third man we've seen play an old woman in a horror movie? Yeah, because what, we had the Black Bride from Insidious Uh and then I think Bathsheba in The Conjuring. Yeah, a lot of these old naked lady characters just (laughs) tend to be played by men. But he's interesting because this is his acting debut, and he's mostly known as a singer-songwriter-musician who writes children's songs. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, so he has co-written and produced songs for the upcoming season of The Ghost and Molly McGee on the Disney Channel, (laughs) and T.O.T.S. Tots on Disney Junior. And he was also commissioned to write a children's album called I Love My Dog. Diversify that resume, Matthew. I mean, yeah, exactly. So he goes from writing children's songs to playing the mother in a horror movie. Interesting guy. And the mother is terrifying. I'll give him credit. She is terrifying. And getting into some pre-plot trivia. So the script started out after Zach Kreger read Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear, which encourages women to trust their intuition when confronted by obviously dangerous men. And he used it as a writing exercise to begin a 30-minute short that consisted entirely of a conversation in which a woman continues to ignore a mounting series of red flags. And then Barbarian was born. That reminds me of how, was it Raw that started out as a, like, writing prompt? That director started, like, trying to make, like, a sympathetic cannibal, and that's how Raw came to be? I think so. That's interesting. It is interesting. I kind of love when movies start out like that. That's the English teacher in me, because I'm like, these free rights aren't for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) This is my favorite trivia for the movie. So Zach Kreger originally offered the role of AJ, which doesn't mean anything now, but it will. And I will bring this up again. He originally offered the role of AJ to Zach Efron. And AJ is a total tool. But Efron turned it down, causing Kreger to rethink the role and offer it to Justin Long. I like Justin Long, especially (laughs) in horror movies. What other horror movies is he in? 
Jeepers Creepers, which Jeepers Creepers was made by a terrible, terrible human being. So it's kind of hard because it's a good movie series, but the person who made it has a lot of shit that he's done that's horrible. So that's bad. But then he's also in Tusk. (laughs) Okay, you have mentioned this one before. Tusk is something you don't need to watch more than once. Great. It's essentially (laughs) about a guy who kidnaps another guy and performs cosmetic surgery against his will to turn him into a walrus. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And Justin Long's the guy in that. Great. Well, he does a great job and he is so funny. And I love Justin Long because for some reason, one of my favorite movies ever is Accepted. (laughs) You've said this before. Yeah, I remember you saying this before. I honestly can't tell you why. And he's in that. So I have a soft spot for him. Also, the film itself is set in the fictional 476 Barbary Street. This is interesting because, of course, the movie is called The Barbarian. And the year 476 was when the barbarians invaded Rome. But Kreger insists that this is a complete coincidence and unintentional. Sure. Yeah, sure. The title of the movie is written only using the letters from Airbnb. It just seems like Zach Kreger got high one day and was (laughs) like, let me see. These are some like Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. They really are. And although not officially credited in any way, Jordan Peele was an invisible hand in shaping the eventual story. Georgina Campbell tells IndieWire in an interview that, quote, writer Zach Kreger is good friends with Jordan Peele. And I think he spoke to Jordan Peele a lot while he was writing this film. And Jordan Peele saw an early cut of it as well. Campbell said, so he definitely was part of the essence of the movie. So let's get into it. Hell yeah. So we open with some rain, which, of course, great to set a setting. I need the weather report. (laughs) (laughs) Cloudy and dark with a chance of ominous. (laughs) So our final girl, Tess, rolls up to her Airbnb. She's looking at the check-in instructions and not once but twice ignores a call from a Marcus that is calling her. This kind of reminds me of Hush when Maddie ignores those calls from her boyfriend. So we think that this boyfriend is going to be like a character that's eventually going to show up. He doesn't, but it's a nice (laughs) little red herring that happens. She goes to check the lockbox. There's no key. She calls the owners. No answer. She is stranded outside in the rain. She goes to get back in the car, but then sees lights turn on inside the house. She approaches and the man inside opens the door for her, asks what she's doing there. After long conversations of them comparing notes, they both realize they both booked a stay there through different home share apps. And he invites her in so that she doesn't have to stand in the rain and then we're hit with a title card. So once inside, he has already seen Tess's reservation confirmation, but Tess asks to see his reservation confirmation. He teases her, like, what do you think? I'm some weirdo who broke into sleep here. But it's not funny because, I mean, he could be. (laughs) Especially since he has knowledge of the neighborhood and she doesn't. Yes. And so he shows her his confirmation. All of his information checks out to fine, they're both here. The situation seems to be what they originally thought it was as this random double booking. She heads to the bathroom to dry off, clean up, check herself, and of course, locks the door when she gets in there, pees. And as she's peeing, she's kind of like assessing her surroundings. We're seeing her notice this electric toothbrush on the ground, other things about the bathroom, the room itself. So we can see right away, you know, she's inside the house with a stranger, but she's trying to be cautious. 
And showing that his story is checking out because he has a toiletry bag. All of his shampoo and conditioners are in travel bottles. So maybe assuring her to the fact that this guy doesn't actually live here or he's not squatting like he arrived here for a short stay like she did. She says she's going to find somewhere else to stay, and he offers for her to at least just stay inside while she looks since the neighborhood is sketchy. And this is the first verbal confirmation that we got that the area that they're in maybe isn't the most safe after dark. And then he starts getting like a little eager. He offers her tea, wine, peanuts, (laughs) says that she has a pretty name. Mm. And everything that he does to try to be more accommodating is making her more and more uncomfortable. And it's this fun little dance that they're doing because you could tell he's trying to do everything right to not seem intimidating. But the more that he's doing, he's coming (laughs) off even more intimidating because it's showing that he finds her attractive or is trying to just be gentlemanly when that's not the kind of interaction that she wants right now. But they come to find out that no hotel has vacancies because there's a big medical convention in town. So he offers for her to stay overnight, even insists that the young lady must take the bedroom because of his upbringing. They don't look like they're too far off in age, but he definitely looks a little bit older than her. Keith is his name, is played by Bill Skarsgård. And I think half the fact that we're reading him as threatening is because he's Bill Skarsgård Mm -hmm. and he fucking plays Pennywise. He's just a peculiar looking man. And I don't think it's wrong to say that. He's got wide eyes. He's got wide eyes. <laughs> and he almost just has that like Jeremy Allen White effect. Like the guy who plays Lip in Shameless. Or even Kyle Gallner yes. effect yeah. where he looks a little bit off. But because he looks a little bit off, he's either really hot or really threatening. Yes. So that's exactly what's at play here. <laughs> Tess ultimately agrees to stay. You know, he says he'll take the sofa. She can have the bedroom. She is like, look, I have a thing about clean sheets. So the next scene we see, the sheets are in the washing machine, which I appreciate. I also like clean sheets. What can I say? As the sheets are in the dryer, she can't really go to bed yet and kind of hide herself in her room. So Keith grabs the rest of her things from her car. She brings the stuff into the bedroom. She checks out his wallet that is left on the dresser to confirm his ID. She takes pictures on her phone to have a record. She washes up. And when she comes out, again, still waiting for the sheets, Keith is waiting with the housewarming wine that had come up earlier. And he goes on this whole spiel about, I saw you didn't drink your tea. And I realized, you know, you might have thought I did something to it. So I wanted to wait to open the wine so you could see me open the wine and know that I wasn't fucking with it. She passes the first time around, but he's just so sweet that she ends up sitting down and chatting with him for a little bit and realizes that they have some interesting connections. So she shares that she's in town for a job interview with a obscure filmmaker, Catherine James. And it turns out Keith just saw her most recent movie, which again, underground, like indie movie I was gathering. And Tess is like, no way you saw this movie. But he's like, yes, I loved it. It's about jazz and this guy. And she's impressed. You can tell she's impressed. And it turns out Keith is a co-owner of a really successful startup that's in Detroit looking for office space. So he's like this successful guy. He's smart. They kind of start hitting it off a little bit. So we get a cut to later in the night. They're drinking the wine. They're bonding. They're kind of flirty. And I even, like I said to Willie's prior to recording, I'm like, (laughs) I knew you were eating this shit up. I was dining. (laughs) (laughs) 
They start talking about her presumably abusive ex-boyfriend, who we can assume to be Marcus. She's talking about how she's writing off dating for a while. So that leads them into a conversation about gender dynamics, where Tess reveals, if we were in opposing situations, like, I would have never let you in the door to, like, my Airbnb, because I don't know who you are. And he's like, what? What do I look like? Some sort of monster? And I wrote, you're literally Pennywise. (laughs) Okay, like, yes, you are. They start bonding and Keith tries to not all men the situation. Again, trying to make her more at ease and it's working, especially when he does this duvet cover trick that leaves her all hot and giggly. This, I have to say this. Have you ever seen The Holiday? It's like a 2004 Christmas movie starring Cameron Diaz, Jack Black, Kate Winslet, and Jude Law. Quite a cast, but no, I haven't seen it. Okay, well, there's a scene where Jude Law puts a napkin over his face and holds it to his face with a pair of glasses, and he has this whole skit about being Mr. Napkin Head. This is giving the exact same energy as Mr. Napkin Head. It's so nerdy, but it's adorable. It, like, executes it perfectly. There's, like, a certain amount of, like, oh, you're such a dweeb, but also it's so innocent and cute. It feels like it really kind of cinches the whole, all right, this guy isn't so bad. And I've seen this duvet cover trick on TikTok, so it's valid. I suppose it works. (laughs) I've never had the energy to fucking own a duvet or a duvet cover for this reason. But, you know, this makes me feel more at ease than I could after this. She's smiley after he heads to bed. There's even that awkward tension of, like, they just keep looking at each other. I know. He's like, well, I'm going to go to bed. And she's like, well, okay. It was really cute. But also to me, I was like, this man thinks his favorite porn is finally going to happen in real life. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, because he just lingers a little too long. It, to me, betrayed that he might be expecting a little something. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is a little too much of a meet cute. Yes. Yeah, he's going to have some fantasy fulfilled. But he goes into the living room to sleep on the couch. We cut to the middle of the night. She wakes up to some noises and looks over to see that the door that she has shut is now open. She's uneasy, so she rises to investigate, walks out into the living room, and Keith is having a nightmare on the couch. He's talking to himself and crying out. So she touches him to wake him up, which freaks him out. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you here? She's like, well, my door was open, and I didn't open the door. I closed the door. Did you open the door? And he insists that he didn't open the door. He's like, why did you touch me? He's like, you were having a nightmare. He's like, I was having a nightmare. Like, it just was, (laughs) it's like a very weird, sleep-deprived misunderstanding. So she returns to bed, locks the door, wakes up the next morning, late for her interview, realizes Keith is not there. Her door was closed all night, so she feels a little safer and sees a note from him asking her to leave the key back in the box and that he'll see her tonight and that he had so much fun the night before, which smooths over any tension that they had. So she seems to be relieved to see that. So she arrives for her interview, and it seems like it goes really well. Afterwards, the woman she interviewed with asked about where Tess was staying and seems genuinely concerned with Tess's answer. This moment, just like Keith's comments the previous night about, you know, hey, this is a little bit of a rough neighborhood. You really shouldn't be sitting in your car looking for hotels. Why don't you just stay here? You know, affirms that this really is a not so great area. Also, in the morning, when she's going to her job interview in her cute little blue Jeep Liberty, She can see the neighborhood for the first time, and it looks like the Airbnb she's staying in is literally, like, the only inhabitable house for blocks. All the other homes are, like, very severely damaged. You know, some of them seem to have caved-in roofs. So she realizes, oh, shoot, I guess it is good that I stayed the night at this house. You know, I made sure I stayed safe or whatever. 
Yeah, that's where I had said to Elise prior to recording, I can't tell if the Airbnb is the first of many to be gentrified or if it's the last remaining occupant of a neighborhood that's gone under. You know, now that you say that again, and I've had time to think about it, I think because of what we later find out about AJ and the way that it is modernized, Mm -hmm. I think it's the first on the block to move towards gentrification. Because it's modern, like it's redecorated, it's fresh, it's new. It's giving like house flip vibes, like the gray laminate floors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially because we do get a flashback of what it did look like. Yes. So you're so right. I I think you are really right about that. So Tess returns to the Airbnb, you know, the tension's building as she's driving through the neighborhood. We had even talked prior to recording where, I forget what you said, but you said something along the lines of like, I can't imagine there being one nice house in like a line of that many. It looks like a ghost town. Like it doesn't look like there are people living there and the houses are in rough shape. It looks like everything is completely empty. The ceilings are caved in, like the windows are busted out. Like it looks like you can't even live there. It's so true, though, but I used to, for my full-time job, take college students on service trips, and there was this borough of Pittsburgh that we stayed in, and part of the requirement of the housing situation that we stayed in was that we had to participate in a program called A Walk Around the Block, where essentially the minister of the church we were staying at would take us around the neighborhood that the church was surrounding in. And literally showed us this block where there was a row of five houses and four of which look exactly like this neighborhood where it's like they were graffitied and they had caved in ceilings and the porches were like so traversed and broken into and whatever. And there was one habitable house in like a row of five. And it was literally showing how it's like a statistic of the idea of like gentrification and white Mm. flight of when folks get to a neighborhood, it starts to become more urbanized or more diverse. A lot of folks don't want to stay in that neighborhood, so they flee and these houses sit abandoned and they become this space for folks who are experiencing homelessness and addiction and all of these kinds of things. Again, like it seems unrealistic, but I literally remember having this experience with some of my students where we're walking through and it literally was like four houses of just looking like absolute demolition. And then this one house of this family that just refused to leave the neighborhood, which speaks to some of the characters that we meet later in the movie. So it seems like so unrealistic, but having had an experience like that personally, where you see that face to face. It is a reality for some people where they don't have neighbors. They refuse to give up the house they've lived in forever. Mm-hmm. But as a result, you stop receiving support. The cops won't come if you call yeah. them, which uh-huh. we see later in the movie. It becomes like just such a wasteland. And that's exactly where there's Airbnb is sitting. It's trying to, you know, quote unquote, turn the neighborhood around. But for whom? So Tess exits the car. And as she's walking up to the house, a homeless man yells at her from afar and begins to chase her. He says, hey, little girl, come here. You come out of that house. Again, like, it's just sounding threatening. Like, no one wants to be called little girl. Yeah, I'm like, sir, (laughs) if you really want to get this woman's attention and maybe have her listen to you, maybe don't call her little girl and run at her full speed. Absolutely not. (laughs) That's not the way. That's not the way to get somebody's attention. Know your audience, please. But she makes it inside and locks it as he continues to pound on the door. She calls 911 for assistance, but they claim they don't have any available units. And because he appears to have left the area, they just leave her be. So later, after she has calmed down a little bit, the man is nowhere to be seen since the original sighting. She is scouting around for toilet paper. She has run out in the main bathroom. 
Opens the basement door, sees some at the bottom of the steps on what looks like a laundry machine, I guess. So she goes down into the basement, grabs some. But once she comes back up, the basement door has shut and it's locked. So she can't get back out. She does not have her phone. Mm-hmm. And she has the key to the Airbnb in her pocket, which means that Keith can't get in the house to let her out, even though yeah. he's not back yet. So she's like... Fuck. So she's trying to look around, see if she can find a way out. There's like a basement window that she inspects for a minute. And as she's looking around, she sees this rope that's coming out of the concrete wall. So again, like very intentionally a rope in the wall. She's like, what the heck is this? She starts pulling it and it turns out that it opens a secret passageway. (laughs) And I love this moment because we have like the zoom in, the rising tension, just when it looks like she might go exploring, she just goes, nope. (laughs) And turns around and sits on the stairs. However, we get this elapsed time feeling She's still in the basement. Curiosity seems to get to her because she kind of smartly grabs this mirror and sets it up to try to reflect some light inside the corridor, props it up, and then enters to see what she can find back there. This is where I just start to lose Tess. (laughs) There's many times that I question Tess's logic throughout the rest of this movie. This is the first instance, and it doesn't get better throughout the rest of the movie, except for maybe the final frame, (laughs) where I'm like, I don't agree with anything you're doing. (laughs) And I don't know what feeling of obligation or loyalty that you have to the people in this movie, but I think you would die immediately in the first round in next year's March Madness. And I think you you will. And I think you will. Sorry. She inches her way inside, finds another door, opens the door, and finds a room with a dirty mattress, a waste bucket, and a camera set up on a tripod with a bloody handprint on the wall. It's awful. She immediately catches the vibes. She starts freaking out. She runs out into the main basement space. And just when we think maybe somebody's going to pop out of there and chase after her, she sees that Keith has arrived back home. He's standing on the porch confused because he can't get back in. But then he sees her banging on the basement window because it faces front and he comes and helps her get out of the window. She tries to explain to him what she saw. She's like, there's a mattress and a bucket and a room and a camera. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, calm down. You're not making any sense. But to me, she was making perfect sense. She saw all she needed to see. I was like, say less, Tess. Like, I just need to see your face and we're out of here. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But he insists, I need to go down and look at it. She's like, no, I'm leaving. We need to go. But he just insists, I need to see. Please don't leave until I go down to see. And she agrees. Well, he says, you said you got locked in the basement. I don't want to get locked in the basement too. So can you at least just wait till I come back up? Which makes sense to me if we know that the basement door locks That's the thing. Tess didn't get out of the basement window. She was able to pass the key through to Keith so he could get in the front door and let her out of the basement. Okay, that makes sense. So that window isn't a very navigable, it will become a navigable space, but not right now. Well, once it's busted open. Once it's busted open later. (laughs) But Keith's not getting through that window. True, okay, good point, good point. Like, all that kind of stuff. So he's just trying to rationalize it. So there's a mattress in a bucket. You are such a man right now. You are such a man. I would be like, are you kidding? (laughs) There's a mattress and a bucket. It's a combination of items that don't go together. And you're like, that's all I need to hear. And you go. And he's just not listening. So he goes down, starts exploring. She begins to yell after him, unresponsive. Yells after him. She props the basement door open. 
returns to the hallway with a flashlight. He is not in the room with a bed and a bucket, but as she explores further, she finds that there's another door that leads to another hallway. And then as she explores that hallway, she opens another door to stairs. So she calls down after him. He calls back asking for her help. And this is where I write, ma'am, you owe this man nothing fucking run. Seriously. But also, you can tell that he's screaming at full volume, but he sounds so quiet. And it's so scary because that's how you know there are extensive tunnels. Extensive. Lots of, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of underground tunnels. So she descends the stairs with her light calling after him and then finds a gate. I wrote, this is why women live longer than men. <laughs> Because this man traversed three more doorways than her in half the time where he just kept coming across all of these barriers that are denying entry. And he's like, let me just explore. No, woman would never do that. No. I also want to add the cages. She starts seeing some cages, which he also sees and just breezes straight past. <laughs> just like all the red flags. It's amazing to me that he does not immediately start reacting with the same emotion that she does upon first seeing just the first room. I want to know how a man rationalizes it. <laughs> like first, a dirty mattress with a tripod with a camera on it. He even says, he's like, well, maybe he just has his extra stuff in a room. And we know that is a sexual assault dungeon. <laughs> yes. Like we know we have been primed for this. The uh -huh. cages, I want to know. He's like, oh, well, maybe he's just a hunter. No, that's where they keep women. That's where they keep yeah. meat. The socialization is so different, and I love seeing the contrast of how he doesn't think it's a big deal until it is. And this scene also lasts a really long time. Like, her slowly, painfully moving deeper and deeper and deeper into these tunnels. Keith has just totally stopped answering at this point, but she keeps going. But then all of a sudden, he appears. And again, this is so scary because there's very little light. She's using her cell phone flashlight, which is does not throw a lot of light into the room. So like, by the time we see Keith, he's right in front of her. It's very jarring. He is trying to whisper to her that somebody else is down there and they bit him. And they argue about which way to go out. Keith is trying to say that they should go back. There has to be a way out back in the tunnels. But Tess is like, no, like the way out is this way. We have to go this way. And as they argue, a scary naked woman appears, grabs Keith with super strength, bashes his head several times against the wall, killing him. And we end with a shot of Tess and the mother staring each other in the face. And the scene cuts out. And that is the first act. <laughs> Smash cut to a brand new character we have never met. Never met. But guess what? It's Justin Long. It's Justin Long. <laughs> and I know like some people think this is jarring. I found this jarring, but I also think it's a little refreshing. And I think that's also because I love the Suspiria remake so much is that it is very succinctly like cut into acts. So we get this new character more than halfway through the movie at this point. He is in a convertible. He is driving on the coast and he is singing in his car. His name is AJ. And he gets a call from his agents about this upcoming pilot that he's a part of that he's super excited that got picked up by a network. But his agents inform him that his co-star for this new show told the network that he was sexually aggressive toward her during filming and she does not want to move forward with the project if he is involved. He's like, wait, what do you mean? Does this mean I'm fired? His agents tell him he's most likely fired, even if the show does still get picked up despite all of the drama. 
he's like, that fucking bitch. And this is language that he continues to use very consistently throughout the movie is that he's more upset at the prospect that this woman's trying to ruin his career rather than the implications that he caused harm, which I think becomes a theme later. He is also informed that the Hollywood Reporter will be publishing a story about him going live the next day with details of the allegations, which we can come to surmise is that he raped her. He ends the call, pulls over dumbfounded, and the next scene we see is with his accountant. A little bit of during the plot trivia. So the Hollywood Reporter who releases the story about AJ is Kim Masters or credited to be Kim Masters. And she is a real life reporter at the trade publication. And in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein cases, she became known for breaking stories about men in film and TV who were accused of sexual assault. Isn't that cool? Amazing. Mm -hmm. Just some more IMDb treasure right there. So yeah. Cut to, we're having a conversation with our financial advisor. We're trying to figure out how to pay for a lawyer, what the lawsuit is going to cost. The financial advisor is basically like, look, the thing that's really dragging you down is your mortgage. You have some other properties in Detroit. You could try to sell those to buy yourself time, but it's only going to buy you a little bit of time. But even though AJ knows that the move to make would be to sell his house, he doesn't want to do that. So instead, he gets ready to fly to Detroit to try to sell off some of his little properties. And again, he's reiterating, like, I'm going to ruin this fucking bitch. None of this is true. So you could tell he is not taking accountability. So the next thing we see is him reading the story about himself in the airport as he calls his lawyer. His lawyer tells him it's a distinct possibility that he's getting arrested and that he shouldn't have left the state. Yes. And AJ's like, I'm in Michigan liquidating. So we understand that he's selling his properties. And through context, we figure out that he actually owns 476 Barbary. Also, he has this line of dialogue as he talks to his lawyer about hoping he could just call Megan, which is the woman making these allegations, so he could just, quote, nip the whole thing in the bud. Like, he is under the assumption that he could just call this woman on the phone and be like, hey, I think we've had a misunderstanding. And it's like, of course you think that. He arrives at the house and realizes that he still has tenants. He sees all of (laughs) Keith and Tess's items. So he calls the rental company who reveals they haven't had renters in weeks, which is informing us that there's been a significant time jump. So Keith and Tess may have been missing for at least what appears to be maybe a month now. And they said they haven't had mates come in to clean the place because they only come in when there is a next renter lined up. But because there hasn't been a renter lined up, The place has been left as is since Tess and Keith have been sitting there, which is why all of their stuff is still there. So he is all pissed off. He gets together with a friend in town. They go to a bar and his friend's like, come on, man, level with me. Like, what actually happened? I've been reading the news about you. And AJ admits that him and Megan did have sex. She just took some convincing. He asks if she said no. AJ says she said no at first, but I'm a persistent dude, right? I'm the fucking eye of the tiger. She came around and was really down once we started fooling around some more. Fucking yikes. Fucking yikes. Also, a little bit of trivia. The friend AJ is talking to is played by Zach Kreger himself. I love the little director cameos. Isn't that fun? I love it. So he's the friend. I wrote, this scene is only here for us to be happy when AJ dies, lol. Um, seriously. And also this scene, because AJ gets home and immediately drunk dials Megan and tries to apologize to her on the phone. He tries to say there's been a misunderstanding. I just want to talk to you. 
But this is cringy because, again, he calls her, but also B, he was advised specifically not to call her. We know that AJ keeps fucking up. He clearly has no idea what's going on or what to do. He just exists in this bubble where he thinks whatever he does is the right move. What's so infuriating about this is it genuinely does seem like an earnest apology from somebody who is so self-unaware. Because he says, I'm guessing you don't want to talk to me. I just want to say I'm really, really sorry if I did anything that might have offended you because, you know, people can have different versions of the same thing. And I'm actually not even mad at you about it. I just hope you're not mad at me because I really am sorry. Please call me back and I'll apologize to you again. Mm -hmm. But obviously he wouldn't be doing that had pressure not be coming from the outside. And he obviously didn't think there was anything amiss with their sexual encounter prior to the allegations coming out. So although it seems earnest from his end, we can definitely read that he is very much concerned with his public perception and Mm. not how she is actually feeling. Yeah, agreed. So the next morning, AJ wakes up. He promptly vomits in the bathroom because he is hungover as fuck. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to go through these suitcases. I'm going to try to figure out who these people are, what is going on. As he's rooting through Tess's suitcase, he finds a copy of Jane Eyre, which we will be talking about a little later. And he finally finds a laptop. He tries to unlock it to no avail. So he promptly chucks it. My ass clenched when he threw this laptop on his MacBook. (laughs) Those cost a lot of money, but he doesn't care because he also has a lot of money. But he remembers when he arrived at the house, he saw that the basement door was still propped open with that chair. So he opens the door to the basement and starts to go exploring. I wrote, he dresses up in polo sneakers and a pink button down to go threaten people in his basement. (laughs) Like, it is the most Abercrombie and Fitch thing I've ever fucking seen. (laughs) Like, it's so funny. So he grabs a knife and a flashlight. And he's like, all right, bitch, get ready to get fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I fucking hate this guy. And I can't wait till he fucking dies. But he's so funny to watch. (laughs) He is. This is the beginning of my favorite little like seven minute section, maybe like five to seven minute section. He goes down to the basement and finds the mirror set opposite the hallway, which is now closed. The hallway is now closed. Mm -hmm. He hears a bang beyond it, though, finds the rope, pulls it open goes searching down the hallway and does not seem afraid. Instead, we are jump-cutted to him Googling, can underground rooms be listed as square feet when selling a home? (laughs) (laughs) The way that he, like, doesn't even register the bed, the bucket, and the camera is crazy to me. Like, he's reading the Google reviews. He's like, does not usually count. He's like, okay, so usually. (laughs) And then it's like, but can be listed as area square feet. And he's like, oh, hell yeah, bitch. Like, you could tell, like, he is... (laughs) Mind on his money, money on his mind. Like, that's all that he wants. So he gets a tape measure and starts measuring the square footage of the halls in the dungeon. Every new thing that he encounters, he's saying things like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. Jesus. But he's happy because he's like, oh, my God, because he thinks he's sitting on a gold mine and he's giggling. And it's just so fucking funny to see how fucking unaware he is. It is it's the best part of the movie. So comical. Like the, the stark the contrast between not only just like the implications of the setting, but what we, the audience, know has already happened here and his just complete disregard. Like he doesn't even know how to like take in that information. Like he finds the cages and is measuring around them. I'm like, oh, yeah. body! <laughs> like, dude, like those are cages. <laughs> but then He makes it back, back, back farther than we have seen previously. And he finds this room with blankets on the floor, this vintage breastfeeding video playing. And then in a very innovative scare, 
the measuring tape he's holding starts to rapidly pull outwards and outwards and outwards as if somebody has grabbed it and is running in the opposite direction. I (coughs) fucking loved this scare because I think it just relates to the fact that everyone's a little afraid of a tape measure. Like... (laughs) Like, the idea that you're measuring something and you think that it's sitting on that nail or you think that it's sitting on that hinge, you think it's sitting on that whatever, and when it starts, like, violently (laughs) recoiling back to you, you're like, ah! Like, you think, like, it's going to come and, like, kill you? Yes. Like, I was like, this is such a specific experience, and I'm glad that they created a scare out of it, but instead it takes the tape measure away from him. Yes. You can see on his face that he's finally realizing, like, "Uh uh-oh, I walked myself how many feet into a random tunnel division, and now it seems like there's somebody else here. Fuck. So he lets it go. We see the tape measure pull out of view. He starts trying to run out. Yeah, he's running down the hallways fearfully. His flashlight stops working. So we have this light flashing in and out within these heartbeat in vitro noises, which I thought was very creative. And then the mother approaches from the dark and a jump scare chases him. He falls into a pit and then is trapped in from a great cage from above, giving very much sounds of the lambs. Then Tess appears. She lunges forward and covers his mouth in the darkness and shushes him. So, oh my God, Tess is alive. So then... Again, we are given new characters thrown (laughs) into a flashback, which, again, I understand is disorienting, but it's also a little refreshing at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And now it's the 50s. We see a random man leaving his house. It's the same house we've seen, the same pale yellow color, the same block. But in this flashback, he is living in a very nice, bustling neighborhood with children riding bikes. All of the homes are inhabitable. And he heads to the store in his car. A nice woman helps him get supplies ready for a home birth, including what looks like the breastfeeding video that we end up seeing on repeat. So as he gets back in his car, he sees a woman across the street getting in her car and he decides to follow her. He follows her home. We see another shot of her getting groceries or whatever out of her car and walking inside. We see this man, which we later learn to be Frank, getting out of his car, going to the trunk and putting on a set of coveralls. And he poses as an electrician doing some investigation because there have been quote unquote power outages around the neighborhood. He enters the woman's house, uses her bathroom and unlocks the window from the inside so that we can assume that he's going to come back in the night to kidnap this woman and take her to his lair. So then he just goes back home and heads inside and down to the basement. Where we hear screams crying out, which is confirming our idea that he's definitely a fucked up man. Oh my God, yeah. Back to the present, Tess tells AJ that he needs to stay calm and he can't freak out around her because if they get upset, she gets upset. Mother then comes down and puts a bottle through the grates towards them and shakes it at him. Tess urges him to drink it, which she ends up doing, and tells him she just wants you to be her baby. But he refuses. She jumps down. She, in look, is very tall, very pale, has long, dark hair, very witchy nails. If you've seen It Chapter 2, it's very similar to that old naked lady. I I think they all look the same, kind of. like It's not a very new idea. She cradles Tess and says, baby, which is kind of endearing, but it's also terrifying given the circumstance. 
Adria tries to run, but she restrains him, drags him out out of the hole, leaving the gate open. The mother drags him to the TV room with the breastfeeding video on. While mother is doing that, Tessa is able to climb out of the hole with the flashlight while the mother forces AJ to breastfeed from her. This is the part of the movie that Riley happened to be in the room with me when I watched. Yeah. And I was so pissed because I was like, just drink from the fucking bottle, AJ. And Riley was like, he's not because it's emasculating. I was like, oh, so he's concerned about that. Because Tess is like, do what you have to do to survive. Just Mm -hmm. drink out of the bottle. And he's like, absolutely not. I also just want to know what's in the bottle. Like, I would be like, what the fuck's in there? I'm not letting myself think about it. Or just, like, fill my mouth and then spit it out. Like, be a little creative about it. Just play the role. But the fact that AJ isn't willing to do what he needs to do just to survive the situation is showing that he's, yeah, letting his masculinity override survival in that moment. Yeah. So meanwhile, yeah. The mother is trying to breastfeed AJ, which is very disturbing. And as Tess gets out of the hole and tries to sneak past the room with the comforter on the floor where the breastfeeding is occurring, she accidentally kicks the fucking tape measure. Fuck that shit. The tape measure is a paid actor at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And it betrays her. So she realizes she is caught. She starts running, 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 running. She makes it to the main section of the basement once again breaks open the basement window when she realizes she's locked in. Just when we think the mother is going to get to her, the good Samaritan, who is credited as a man named Andre, like I guess he has a name, even though I don't know if we ever hear it, approaches and helps pull her out of the basement. Mother does not snatch her. Tess is now out of the house with this man, Andre. Yeah, the homeless man from earlier who ran at her. Yes, 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 yes. So the man that tried to warn her to stay out of the house, I guess now we realize was being genuine in trying to keep her out of the house. He just did not go about it in a very persuasive way. No. (laughs) So Tess exclaims that they have to go back and help him. But the man's like, listen, you got out. There's no helping him. That house is a bad place. She's not even the worst thing that's in there. She comes out at night and she's going to come looking for you if you don't get out of here. And this is where I lose Tess a lot. I'm like, get in your car and leave. (laughs) Why do we have loyalty to men that we've known for under 24 hours? And in this case, three minutes. Yeah. I would understand if she felt a little bit of loyalty to Keith, who like maybe fronted the threat for her. But AJ was in the cage with her for all of five minutes before she's like, we have to go back for AJ. I'm like, why? Maybe she feels trauma bonded. Like maybe she knows he's going to be in there experiencing what she experienced unless she goes in and ends it. It's just so infuriating knowing that AJ does not give a fuck. And we see that throughout the rest of the movie. And she doesn't know that yet. Of course, it's not her fault. But like there has to be some element of self-preservation where you're like, I'll get him help once I get 100 yards away from this place and can call the police. Like, I don't need to be going back Give me 100 there. yards. That's a good give number. Give me, like, you love 100 yards. I love 100 you, you yards. You love a distance mm-hmm. estimate. Like, give me <laughs> a distance estimate, which is all Andre's trying to do. Like, come with me to the water tower. It's safe over here. And she's like, no, I need to go back in and get him. And I'm like, <laughs> girl, no, this is how you die. <laughs> So meanwhile, AJ is trying to escape because the mother has left him to go chase after Tess. So he is following some wires deeper and deeper inside the cave and finds a fucking room in the way back with an old man inside who is bedridden, cannot communicate, and seems very sick. And we can assume that he is the guy that we just saw from the flashback, Frank. Meanwhile, Tess has made it to a gas station and called the police. 
They don't seem to be taking her story seriously, even after she manages to get them back to the house. But then they get another call about some shooting that happened nearby and they need to leave her and she's left by herself. Back inside the tunnels, AJ, I love to see dude. This is like second place for me. This old man is trying to communicate something with AJ and AJ is getting so frustrated because he doesn't know what this man wants and he doesn't know how the hell to take care of another person who's not himself. So he eventually just picks up the whole nightstand and like just brings it it over over to the man and puts it down. It's like, here. AJ continues to look around. He finds a wall of VHSs, puts one in. And as he watches it, we can see that Frank in the back is rooting through some drawer in the nightstand. He's trying to find something. Cut to a little bit later. AJ has watched the videos and realizes that the tapes that have been stored in the basement are of Frank assaulting multiple women over the years. So he is like, what the fuck? Turns around. He's like, who are you? What have you done? Because he's been under the presumption the entire time that this man is imprisoned by the mother. Which is also interesting to me. AJ immediately finds solidarity with the man. Exactly. Even though he's a scary stranger who is also old. I was like, literally, back on our we don't see old people as threats shit. Yeah. X, literally. Mm -hmm. But then as AJ chastises Frank for being a sicko, Frank reveals that he has found a gun in the nightstand drawer and he brings it up and uses it to kill himself. Yikes. We're cut to some time jumps. It is dark outside. Tess breaks a window and enters the house. She gets her keys to get in her car. And I'm like, finally, she's going to fucking leave. But then mother (laughs) charges out of the front door very cartoonishly. Like at this point, I'm not taking mother seriously because she's just like chasing after Tess. So Tess plows mother into the house, kind of pinning her against the rubble. And it's kind of heartbreaking because you see mother go from vicious to heartbroken as she stares at Tess because she does see Tess, I guess, as her baby. But her position goes very stiff. So it's like, oh, okay, is she dead? We're then cut back to the basement. Frank is indeed dead. AJ is now armed with a gun and a flashlight. Tess props the door open and goes in the tunnels after AJ. And as AJ is fighting his way out and Tess is fighting her way looking for AJ, AJ shoots Tess thinking that she's mother, Mm. which I don't blame AJ in this moment. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to shoot anything that's coming at you in the dark. But AJ's frantic, pulls Tess out. Tess's car is fucked. AJ's keys are lost in the basement somewhere. Tess says she knows where to go and leads them to the water tower where Andre is waiting Meanwhile, mother is gone, by the way. So like Tess re-entered the house thinking mother was dead. But when they come out of the house, mother is missing, which is not good for them. No way. So Andre begins to give some lore on mother. Andre says she's just a crazy old lady living in that house and reveals that she was born there 40 years ago because Frank was a man that imprisoned women, impregnated them, and then would impregnate the babies and says when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, you end up with something like that. And I had said to Elise prior to recording, (laughs) I'm like, there's something to be said about gentrification here. I just don't know what it is. (laughs) Because if you look at this neighborhood and if you look at the cycle of gentrification, right, it's the idea that people existed in cities. And then once immigrants and black and brown people entered cities, white people left the cities to go to the suburbs because they were able to get all these housing loans to get houses in the suburbs so that they could get away, quote unquote, from all of these bad things, quote unquote. Again, this is not my judgment or perception. This is just like historically the perception of white flight. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
then once black and brown families were able to get their way into the suburbs, white families fled those suburbs again, thinking that trouble was following, again, a very racist ideology. But then that would leave these neighborhoods underfunded because you couldn't house them, because people had a perception that bad things were happening because of racism and all of these types of things. So when I look at Andre talking about things of making a copy of a copy of a copy, it's almost like the idea of just this infinite cycle of people enter a community and it's bustling and then the community becomes more diverse. And because the community becomes more diverse, it becomes scary for some people. And then the most wealthy people in that area begin to leave. And then that area becomes underdeveloped and impoverished because of their exit. And then less people want to live there. And then all of a sudden, nobody wants to live there. And then all of a sudden, it's abandoned. And then once it becomes abandoned, white people will go, oh, that's unused, untapped territory. And they make breweries and they make <laughs> yep. yuppified apartments and uh-huh. they make it gentrified. And then the people that lived there want can't afford to live there anymore Mm. and then they have to leave and it's just this endless cycle of gentrification and displacement Andre is speaking to the idea of this happening being that he's one of two black characters in the entire movie, Mm -hmm. one being Tess, one being him and he's kind of meant to be this spokesperson of this area and then it just gets ridiculous from there on out but yeah, I don't know, what do you think? I agree. I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I think that is a very profound thing. I also think that Andre is an interesting character because I have some theories later about Frank, AJ, and Keith. And Andre, you know, is the only man in this movie that doesn't really fit into kind of the category that I put the other three into. He has a more interesting presence. I think something that actually gives a lot more knowledge instead of pushback for once from these other male characters. But it is unfortunate when, as he insists, that the three of them stay in this water tower because it's the only place that's safe. Mother then busts through the cinder block walls of the water tower base, attacks Andre and rips off his arm. And then beats him to death with his own arm. At this point, it's very clear that the mother has some kind of superhuman strength. Like the first time I noticed it really was when she pulled AJ out of the ditch to breastfeed him. Like she pulled a man out of the ditch. I could trace it even back to when she bashed Keith's Keith's head head on the wall, like with such fierce strength. And now here she literally busted through the wall and ripped a man's arm off. Like it feels like it is growing. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing, which is kind of an interesting progression that I'm curious about. But obviously, the other two jump into action. There's no way out because they're in like an enclosed space with barbed wire on top of the fence to guard the water tower. So the only way they can go is up. AJ rushes up the stairs of the water tower. He leaves Tess to kind of figure it out for herself. She does have like an abdominal bullet wound that she's trying to ignore so she can get to the top. Once at the top, they see that mother is following their trace. Tess reminds AJ of the gun, but as he reaches for it and tries to fucking shoot the mother, he fumbles and drops it like an idiot. So with no way out, he realizes that he can distract mother by throwing Tess off the tower. And it's so infuriating because we get this moment before Mother breaks into the water tower of AJ starting to take accountability for all the things he's done. Like talking about Tess's bullet wound, he says, I hurt somebody that matters. I might be a bad person or maybe I'm a good person who just did a bad thing. I can't change what I've done, but I'm responsible to try to fix it. And it's like, okay, so he's recognizing what he did with Megan and we see some inches of character development. But I wrote AJ Uno reverses character (laughs) development. Once he realizes he's out of options and says, I can still get away, but you're going to need to slow her down and launches Tess over the side of the water tower telling mother, go get your baby. 
And to our surprise, Mother does. Spider-Man dives after Tess. Just zoom, zoom. And I guess we're supposed to assume like aerodynamically her dive position is going to get her to the ground before Tess's flat Stanley position. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I did not like physics very much, but cut to AJ looking over the edge and seeing that, in fact, Tess has landed on top of the mother's body and they both originally appear to be dead. AJ runs down, collects the gun and discovers that the mother broke Tess's fall with her own body, which is like, aww. Wow. And also, Tess is alive and he immediately starts to gaslight her with like some other variation of the truth. Like, I didn't push you, you slipped. <laughs> like so comically gaslighty, it's hysterical. But before Tess can honestly even respond, the mother wakes up and we realize that she has survived too. She jumps up, grabs AJ's head with both hands, starts to squeeze his eyes, and then eventually collapses his skull in her hands. He has now died. And Mother looks to Tess and immediately starts to show remorse on her face, seeing all of the wounds that Tess has endured. And she shows worry and concern. And it's cute because she's trying to lift Tess up to take her home. And Tess is like, I can't go back there. So then mother kisses her fingertips and puts them to Tess's face and says, baby. And it's like, it's so endearing. Yeah. But Tess is able to lift the gun and shoot mother in the face. Tess then stands and stumbles away as the credits roll and Be My Baby plays. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) this is like my jaws just dropped and I'm looking at the screen like, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm like, I fucking love this. It is awesome, too, because isn't that song also from the 50s and 60s? Oh, yeah. So, like, I kind of love how thematically, obviously, it goes with some of the closing dialogue of the movie, but it also, we have been in so many different timelines here. I love that it kind of pulls it all together. So, what do we got? A couple things. Okay, so from a Collider article called Barbarians Ending Explained the Horrors and Resilience of Womanhood by Raquel Holman. She talks about a couple different things that I found particularly interesting. One of them was the Bill Skarsgård casting. So you had mentioned us as audience members are on edge because we're seeing a man who is known for playing a very prolific murderer, which she also touches on as well. And how it kind of underscores this reality that Tess is trying to explain to Keith, like, if our roles were reversed, I wouldn't have even let you in, which ends up being like a very important theme throughout the movie, which I thought was interesting. Also, Holman explores this question, like, why does Tess get to live? So she writes, quote, The answer lies in that little book titled Jane Eyre that AJ briefly pulls out of Tess's luggage earlier in the film. A huge subplot of the novel, the novel Jane Eyre, involves a woman, Bertha, held against her will in the attic of her husband's home. She manages to wander the house at night and is mistaken as a ghost by Jane, the new object of her husband's affection. This little Easter egg adds an extra layer to the film's interrogation of the historical and social treatment of women. Frank, the former owner of the house, was able to keep dozens of women locked up right under the noses of his neighbors without so much as a second glance. Even after the neighborhood deteriorated, Frank's legacy of torture remained. In an interesting parallel to Tess's perspective in the first act, the mother is also shown to be socialized to fear men similarly to Tess, despite never having the opportunity to live life outside the basement. It can be deduced that she fears men because her only exposure to them is through Frank, the man who imprisoned and raped her. 
The only time we ever see her cower back into darkness is when AJ makes it to the door of Frank's room. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. remember, we see her start to materialize in the phone flashlight, but she realizes where he is and just cowers back. So I thought that was interesting. There's a really good book called The Wide Sargasso Sea, which was written in response to Jane Eyre to give Bertha's side of the story. And that's a really good book in that it kind of does something similar to what this movie does, which is to try to give an alternate perspective to the fears that women have. Like, when you read Jane Eyre, it's like, oh, poor Mr. Rochester. He married a woman, she turned out to be insane, and now he's stuck in a loveless marriage, and he'll never again have the opportunity to be with a lovely woman. But then you read The Wide Sargasso Sea, and it's like, oh, no. They just have different cultural backgrounds, and he was kind of a jerk and is responsible for her unhappiness and her severe depression. Like, it is so interesting to get those alternate perspectives and hear... Like, we're literally looking at the mother who is the Bertha character. Like, she is one of the women who is kept in this house. And we are supposed to see her kind of like we're supposed to see Bertha and Jane Eyre as this crazy woman who's antagonizing these people. But it's not that clear cut. It's almost like she might see herself as the protector where it's like, if you're going to be down here, I'm keeping you away from him. Yeah, and it kind of makes me think about Bertha too. Like Bertha haunts Jane in a way. Like we originally think she's a ghost and it's kind of like, what was Bertha trying to say to Jane? What was she trying to do? Holman's quote continues. She says, to this end, the surprising ending of the film where the mother willingly sacrifices herself to save Tess and later allows Tess to kill her signifies her innate trust in and solidarity with other women. Even after Tess's first attempt to kill her, the mother still only wants to save her. The film's final twist is giving mother an unexpectedly sympathetic ending. Up until the last few minutes of the film, she is only shown as a monster. In a final moment of tenderness, the mother signals a kiss to Tess and calls her baby before accepting her death. Tess doesn't survive because of a trope. Tess survives because of the centuries of resilience women have had to learn to continue surviving in this world. Usually when I have sources or when we have sources from other articles and things, I'm always like, yes, yes, yes. This ending doesn't necessarily satisfy me, which brings me to a couple of my talking points. So let's continue talking about mother and Tess. The question I have is like, what is the deal with the mother's mounting physical strength and the need for her to die? These might be two separate questions, but I was wondering if they overlapped. Like, I was wondering, what does the mother's strength represent? It is almost supernatural. Like, she's able to, as a woman, just drag a full-grown man out of a hole. She is able to burst through cinder block walls and rip off a man's arm. Like, why is she so strong? Does that mean anything? And why does she have to die? Because I don't know if I'm satisfied with this idea of her death just being there to show Tess's survival. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there is some kind of symbolic meaning here centering like some kind of rejection of old feminine trauma wreaked by men for the future that Tess is supposed to represent. I wasn't sure what your thoughts were on that. To me, I look at her strength increasing as Frank's strength decreases. And it's almost Hmm. like the idea that her capture of other people or her imprisonment of other people is centered in a place of nourishment where Frank's is centered in a place of abuse where Hmm. like she's just trying to breastfeed AJ, which in her sick twisted mind is caretaking life assuring in some way like even the fact that we have this infomercial on in the background of how to properly do it and the benefits that it has to children 
she's almost taken on this role as the protector of this underground or the mother of this underground. And she's trying to keep these children or these people safe from Frank, like even Tess, like Tess could be somebody who would be a victim of Frank. But because Frank's strength has weakened to such a degree, she has this inverse strength that's so large. And I almost see the mother's death as a signal that her services are no longer needed even to the fact that Tess entered the home and she was able to confront Keith and be like, let me see your reservation confirmation or let me sleep with this door closed. It's almost showing the progression of the, I don't want to call it the naivety, but the self-preservation of women rising from perhaps when her or her Mm. mother was captured from the 1950s Mm. to the level of self-awareness that Tess innately has to have to navigate the world as a woman has grown to such a degree where she sees that like she's not needed. Oh, that kills me. And I don't know, like, that's my take. That's yeah, my very, love that. my very disjointed take. Because also, why do you need to kill Andre then? That raises a weird little question. Does she still just see Andre as a threat to Tess, who she sees as her baby? Like, like, what's the logic there? But as I see it, like, she wants to protect Tess and AJ from the harm in which people like Frank can do, not realizing that they're already doing it just by being socialized in the world we live in. Right. That also then brings me to my next question, which is about the men. And so first I will start this with the definition of barbarian, according to Cambridge Dictionary. So there are a couple different definitions here, but the first and foremost one I found is a barbarian is a member of a group of people from a very different country or culture that is considered to be less socially advanced and more violent than your own. Which is really interesting to me because I thought this was going to stem from like a specific, and I guess it does stem specifically from like Roman times. I thought it was going to be more specific to a group of people like the Burgundies or I don't know, something like that. But this just has to do with somebody outside of one's own culture or social expectations and is more ignorant or more violent. So the question is, who is the barbarian? (laughs) It's almost like the cannibalism episodes where it's like, that happens over there. That doesn't happen here. Right. like, Like that kind of like accusation. I think it's interesting because like from a feminine perspective, the men would be the barbarians, but from a masculine perspective, the mother would be the barbarian. Exactly. Like the mother's doing what comes natural to her, which is caretaking Uh and life sustaining and all that kind of stuff. But from the men's perspective, yeah, this like imprisonment. Yeah. Which I think a lot of men see as like a threat to their masculinity is this element of being trapped in relationships they don't want to be in or Mm -hmm. being mothered when they don't want to be, which calls back to that point that you talked about with Riley earlier. Like it's the demasculinizing that's the more threatening thing. And he just won't do it. Like even when it's survival, like somebody in this hole is like, this is what you need to do to survive. And he just can't do it. So then I also had some thoughts about Keith, AJ, and Frank as like varying flavors of harmful masculinity. (laughs) Kind of as like a timeline, because we do jump from different eras, which I think is really interesting. So first we start with Frank. So Frank, to me, is like the archetypal creep who overtly and knowingly antagonizes women by kidnapping, raping, and impregnating them. Of course, he manages to hide this from the public with literal underground tunnels. But also, I think in the 1950s, this presumed kindness, you know, we see him in a scene with his neighbor just like talking shit and like nobody suspects that anything is wrong. But his aggression is still like a quintessential example of violence against women. It is like so in your face overt. 
But then we moved to AJ, who was like next generation masculine aggression. Like he somehow is able to hide behind denial in the face of the rape allegation against him. His comical come to Jesus moment that we talked about where he's even like, maybe I hurt somebody. Like maybe I am a bad person. Coupled with him literally then shoving Tess off the water tower shows that even when he realizes he's done wrong, he's still choosing himself, this self-preservation, this kind of old way of living where he doesn't have to think about these things or be aware of the impact that his actions might have on others. It's like the public versus private. Like he knows how to walk the line. Yes. But also like he's in a situation now with social media and growing feminine voices where he can't hide in the fucking tunnels like Frank could Mm. because people aren't letting him. They're writing articles and they're saying fuck you but then that brings us to keith and even though look i'm not gonna lie (laughs) (laughs) you know there were parts about keith i really enjoyed and i loved the meet cute moment with him and tess but keith is our fucking nice guy he would never seemingly rape a woman but he still won't listen to one no He still will not listen to her like i need to see it for myself and like that to me is enough He is still fitting into this brand of men that we're seeing. Obviously, it's a spectrum, but it still exists in this movie, like this force against women or this group of people who do not take women seriously or consider their needs as real needs or real opinions or ideas. So those are my thoughts on them, which Andre... I don't know really where he fits in this. And maybe if I think about it more, I'll think of something. But as of now, I wasn't sure where he fit into this narrative. It just seemed like he was a lot of exposition. Like he was just giving context to the mother. Like he was just there to kind of be this voice of the streets, this voice of the community, even though nobody was there. When I was thinking about this movie, I was thinking about obviously the horrific parts, like the breastfeeding, like the thing that was going to make people the most uncomfortable. And I was just trying to think of like, okay, why is this scary? Why is this bad? But it's almost like we see Tess in a way replicating this by feeling the need to be the savior for Keith and the savior for AJ. She still feels this like maternal urge. Mm. So it's just showing almost like how primal that is because we don't see mother as human. She's like humanoid. She's almost alien in the sense that she's obviously a little disfigured and mutant-esque and obviously super strong and supernatural to some degree. But it's almost like we're seeing elements of that through Tess by having this urge to protect or this urge to chase after or this urge to travel to preserve the innocence of these men almost like from this maternal figure. Like, is that what she's trying to do again with Frank, which I mentioned earlier, but it's just like, why is that the horrific thing? You know what I mean? I'm thinking back now to the conversation we had before about the quote, the copy of a copy of a copy. Right. And I'm thinking that could be taken from this feminine trauma perspective as well. Like what happens when you take women reproducing and then women reproducing and then women reproducing? Like where does that leave the next generation? Like what do they bring with them from their socialization? And it's like you talking about Tess, like she still brings with her this feeling that she needs to protect these men or that she can't leave them behind or that she owes them something. Maybe you could make the argument, well, you know, from a human perspective, you can't leave these men behind. Like, people need to look out for one another and the law enforcement fails Tess. What is she supposed to do? Like, you could certainly make that argument. But like, in the world of this movie, where we are getting this really gendered construct of this masculine versus feminine, like, I think it shows these still lingering 
feminine traumas or like these expectations that even like young women in 2023 are getting from their mothers or getting from their fathers or getting from culture. It's like, what kind of pressure do we put on ourselves or what kind of pressure do feminine folks put on themselves to take care of these masculine people who clearly time and time again fail to see the signs? who pretend that they're not afraid of danger, but are still running past the red flags and putting themselves into danger, right? right? Like, because men still can put themselves into danger just because they're not hyper aware of it, or this movie would argue that they're not hyper aware of it, doesn't mean that obviously, as we can see, point A, B, and C, can't put themselves into danger. (laughs) And so women who are used to thinking like that, how do I need to protect myself here? They feel like they have to protect those men or those people who aren't considering the world around them in the same way. And so I'm just kind of like, yes, I think that there's a sense of the mother's death being like, all right, pass the torch, you don't need me. And I kind of love that. I think that makes sense for the knowing glance that those two seem to have. It does feel like there is that understanding. But I also don't think it means that the work is done. Like, where do we go from here? Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) That's the movie. That is the movie. So like we said, like we promised, there was so much to talk about, so much to consider. I think I liked it in that way where it left me with a lot to think about. Thank you to the person who recommended this. And thank you to all of you who continue to participate in polls or send emails to make recommendations. We always love to see what you guys want us to talk about. If you would like to get in touch with us, whether it's just to follow along with what we're doing, please feel free to follow us at The Horrors Podcast on Instagram or email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.